Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. And a uh, little secret, the ones that he doesn't win either, <laughs> as we've been as we've been wanting to do. Uh, I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're looking at 2007's U.S. Open, where Roger collected his 12th Grand Slam in first and only painful to say for me against Novak Djokovic. Um, but first, Brian, um, we just set off Mike. This is kind of a, one of his ho-hum. We're entering the ho-hum phase, but then there's going to be a period where he goes several years without a Grand Slam. And that's gonna, those are going to be some interesting ones for us because we're going to be able to talk about him climbing back. He's no longer at the top of the heap. He's the kind of the underdog, if you will, as strange as it is to say. Um, but I think this is the last of the ho-hums. There might be one more. Um, but before we get into that, before we get into 2007, let's, uh, let's fast forward to the present. Uh, some news has come out in tennis the last day or so. The U.S. Open is confirmed, and it got the blessing of Serena Williams, which was a big deal. Just from what I heard, getting her endorsement and getting her participation was sort of not only symbolic, but it was also crucial for the success of the tournament. Um, the French Open dates have also been confirmed. How are you feeling about these developments? Um, I feel good in that we have a semblance of a schedule, but it's also, you know, we've seen how much has changed this year in a very short period of time. So as we sit here in mid-June, let's see how things look two months from now in mid-August when the schedule's ramping up again. Uh, it's going to open up for the men in D.C. and then go to Cincinnati, which is a master's event, but not in Cincinnati. It'll be played on site at the U.S. Open. So it's one way to cut down on travel around the country. So they're not bringing everybody around the country and keep them in one place for longer. No U.S. Open qualifying this year. You roll right into the U.S. Open, and then you jump right onto the European clay, where you're going to play a very condensed clay schedule. And then they're hopeful they're able to do some stuff in Asia or some maybe indoor tournaments in Europe later in the year and try to salvage as much of a second half of this truncated season as possible. So I feel good, but as we know, we've planned a lot of things this year that have not happened. So let's hope uh, that these do go off and go off safely and we can play some high-end tennis in just a couple of weeks. I heard on another podcast, um, I think it's called No Challenges Remaining, NCR. Yeah. Um, the host had the owner of one of the tournaments that's in DC. Yeah, that's uh that's Mark Ein. He owns the uh the City Open, the DC tournament. But got, just to for clarity. Thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna ask I, I want to know about that tournament. I think it's a tournament that you've worked at, correct? Yeah. Okay. So two questions. Well kind of just we'll just talk about it. Dialogue. There's not really a question here, but that's the first tournament back on the schedule. That's the first actual professional tournament according to that podcast and according to the schedule does that mean like the big names are going to come to that tournament to play to kind of get tuned up if you will a and b what is the business model i i was blown away that that an individual owns a tournament so talk about the draw and the potential for like really high ranked players to be playing in that tournament and then talk about the business of owning tournaments if you can um so to start with the that as the first tournament back, 
Right now, it's only back on the men's side because it's a it's a joint event, but the we talk about at least the men's side, you have the 250s, the 500s, the Masters, and then the Grand Slam. So for the men's side, it's a 500-level tournament. It's the only 500 that's in the United States. We've got a couple Masters, and we've got a, a handful of 250s. So it, it's in a unique spot in the U.S. Uh, on the women's side, it's like one rung lower. The WTA does not have the numbers. They've got some titles. So it's it's not the equivalent of a 500. So they're hopeful they're going to get be able to have a women's tournament as well. But right now we know the men are going to be there. Will top men be there? Yes. There are usually top men there every year, but you know, a question of how many. Um, and a lot of it comes down to scheduling. This year was always going to be different for that tournament because it always butts up against the Olympics. Um, so you were probably looking at a different field to begin with. If the Olympics had got on a schedule, maybe some of the top names who were trying to compete in Tokyo would not have been as keen to then fly quickly to DC and play this tournament, which is supposed to start, I think that following week. Um, so that's a change, but I also think you're not going to see, and I might be dead wrong, but I don't know if you're going to see a, let's say a Djokovic play in this tournament because if he plays DC, then he goes to Cincinnati uh, or at the U S open, let's call it Cincinnati and then right into the U S open. I don't think he would want to start that early, um, but you're going to get a lot of guys who, certainly are looking for the points, looking for the money, and this is going to be a really appealing place to start. Now, the business model um, is fascinating, and it's problematic at times for tennis because it's such a it's such a live event sport, which is great in a lot of ways. But let's say you want to start a tennis tournament in your town. Uh, you know, City Open's been around forever. It was started by Donald Dell, who was one of the pioneers. He showed up in the Michael Jordan documentary because he was a pioneer of sports marketing and representation. He was a pro tennis player, but his pro serve company that employed David Falk, who's Jordan's agent, he started this tournament uh, years and years and years ago. Um, the way it works is you need money behind the tournament. Now, certain tournaments have money pumped into them by the Federation. Cincinnati is owned by the USTA. So the USTA is able to keep that afloat. Other They're tournaments- partners. Partners, right. Well, let's say you and me wanted to start a tournament like this DC one. I'm going to pick a city. I'm going to assume they have no they have no tennis there, but they might very well. Let's say you and me wanted to start a tournament in Austin, Texas and make it viable where top 50 players play. Um just hold my hand through this. Like how does that work? Obviously you need money, but like can anybody Here's my here's the reason why I'm fascinated. So, if you want to own an NBA team, you have to buy one of the existing NBA franchises. You can't just create a team right. and then plug into the system. Uh, it seems to me like it's sort of decentralized in tennis. If I have money and I have a venue, I can host tennis events there. How do I plug into the ATP? How do I plug into sponsorships? Uh, and, and, and effectively, how does this DC tournament make money? Because that's what they were talking about on the podcast, but it, the question didn't really get answered. Obviously, you sell tickets, but what is the business of owning a tournament? And, and is it a good business to be in? Uh, I'm not sure it's a great business to be in, but especially right now, because these tournaments make money by ticket sales. Um, so you need people walking through the gates, buying food, buying drinks, and spending their money there. And this year, at least for the immediate uh, start of the schedule, there are not going to be fans, most likely, at these events, certainly not at the U.S. Open. U.S. Open's different because you've got the television contracts, and the but we're not talking, sponsors. yeah, 
But you and I, for our hypothetical Austin tournament, it's similar to buying an NBA team in that, I mean, there are only only so many weeks out of the year. So it's almost like you've got to, and I'm not entirely expertly versed in this, but I think it's, you basically have to buy like a license, like, like another tournament is going to want to get out of the game. So a good example, there was always an indoor tournament in Memphis uh, played in like late March. Um, Memphis didn't want that anymore. I don't know if they didn't want it, but somebody came along and said, Memphis, I forget who it was actually. Um, and said, Memphis, Oh, you know, you know, I forget where it was, but somebody came along and basically said, Memphis will buy your license. And then it went somewhere else. Might, might've actually been long Island in New York, but they have an indoor tournament now for the last couple of years. Um, good example was, uh, uh, always the tune up before the U S open for a while. It was the men and women, was at Yale up in New Haven, Connecticut. It's great. You're close to New York City. You can play the week before. Uh, about 10 years ago, the men stopped going there because they started a tournament at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem. Wake Forest put a lot of uh, money into that. So did the Winston-Salem Tourism Board. They built this new facility. It's great. It's worked out really well. The women were still going there, but as there's been this emphasis on Asia in the women's game, they sold their license in New Haven to... Uh, somewhere in China, I forget which Chinese city. So that tournament has now essentially been moved to China. So in some ways it is like buying an NBA team. It's not going to cost as much money, but that concept is similar. So is it like, it It sounds like it's kind of like a taxi cab medallion in New York City. There's only a certain number of licenses or medallions out there. That's a good analogy. Yes. Okay. And uh, that license effectively gives you access to have the players that are part of the ATP participate. Yeah, it's like a sanctioned event. So like, you know, ATP points will be on our order and, you know, you're guaranteeing that all your facilities and courts and accommodations for the players are going to be up to a certain standard. Yeah, exactly. But you're, it's like you're buying, you know, it's like you want to open a a McDonald's and you've got to buy into like the franchise fee. It's kind of similar to that, except you're not starting it from the ground up. You've got to get that license, the medallion, as you put it from somewhere else. Where's the venue in DC? Is it an actual physical venue or is it one of the, is it like, is it, there was a tournament in Newport beach that was like literally in the parking lot of one of the country clubs in Newport beach. Like they make a, they make a stage and a court, a center court, if you will. Is this an actual physical venue that exists? So it's actually in a rock Creek park, which is like the big park. In oh DC. yeah. 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 And so it's actually a national park, which I know has um, maybe caused some headaches at times for that tournament, because instead of just saying, okay, we want to put a parking lot here, you've got to clear some more red tape before you can just put a parking lot there because it's a national park land. Um, so it's a national park. Um, the tennis center- Does Mark Ein own the venue? Or no. does he lease it from the city? I, he leases it from, I guess, the federal government or the, or the district. I'm not sure one or the other, whoever has jurisdiction, jurisdiction there. Um, the tennis center itself, like the stadium and the, and the surrounding courts are they're they're permanent. Um, they do a lot of, it's actually a really cool thing they do there and cities pumped a lot of money into it. Um, it's the Washington, um, the, the junior, I'm confusing my organizations, but it's an organization that helps kids like inner city kids play tennis, but you know, it's a place for them to work on their schoolwork and just a way to to be active and be involved and in tennis lessons, all that. I mean, Arthur Ashe was involved with this uh, during his lifetime. And then for those, you know, the couple of weeks around the tournament, it becomes, you know, a center, a hotspot for pro tennis. Sure. The other thing a lot of these tournaments will do, 
uh, how they attract some top players is they'll pay the big players to come there. Like they'll, they'll circle a couple of people each year and say, you know, approach their representation and say, you know, we really would like your player to come to this event this year and we will pay him or her X amount of money. And that's for them walking in the door to then add because then, yeah, exactly. And then they're still going to be in the field and eligible to win whatever the prize money is. Um, The appearance fee, well, depending on who it is, is probably going to be more than what the prize money is. Sure. (laughs) You get to that point, you earn it. Why not? Well, if you're a top 10 player, that's, that's the price of admission, right? How many of those, just if you had to guess, how many of those appearance fee type tournaments do the Federer's, Nadal's, and Djokovic's actually show up for? Or do they, are they in an echelon by themselves where they won't even entertain that? Um, Now, at this point, like, I don't know if Federer's entertaining it anymore. At this point, I, I don't think they're doing much in terms of the appearance fees, like they're almost at the point where their appearance fees are going to be for like events, like a company is going to call them and say like, right. come talk to our clients at this dinner. So in many ways, that's even better because you don't have to actually go out and play. You can just get paid for, I heard a great story from somebody Federer was slated to do a, some kind of meet and greet dinner type thing. And for whatever reason, he happened to be running late, not his fault, but the day just kind of ran late. And this guy was telling me he stayed like an hour later, took a picture with like every single person in the room. So, you know, if, and that's like the genius of Federer where he gets like the business side of it, because if you are, he would be within his contractual rights to just say, oh, you know, time's up. I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'll take my check. But to go above and beyond, you know, every single person who was in that room, who I'm guessing has a, a pretty nice bank account. They're going to be like, wow, Roger Federer is the greatest athlete. Yes. They're going to talk to their rich friends and they're going to say, you know, this Roger Federer. So those, that snowball effect builds and it helps him sell more Rolexes, more chocolates and makes him more attractive to the Mercedes of the world. And it's a nice, you know, Roger Federer Incorporated becomes a nice business because of the guy who's involved in it. So I don't know if they're taking many appearance fees to show up, like maybe on the odd occasion. Um, But at this point, I I don't know how many of those they're, they're still doing. We talked uh, either last episode or two ago about Roger being the number one earner in sport uh, for 2020. And that's part of why what you see right there, every, every handshake and every picture counts, right? Even if it's one, it's, it can, it can extrapolate into many, many thousands of uh, fans. I did find it interesting though, that he has got like 9 million followers on Instagram. Not that Instagram is any metric or barometer by any means. I hate that people just kind of gravitate to, what's your Instagram follower count as if it's some sort of register for how successful a person is. This is actually probably a case in point. Leo Messi, a soccer player for Argentina, from Argentina, I should say, 155 million followers on Instagram. It is a, he dwarfs Federer almost like when you see the match counts against Federer and his, many of his opponents. It looks like that, but Federer is the number one earner in sport. Leo's up there, but he's not number one. Um, says something. Um, also, I'm just curious. This is We're just talking about the business of tennis here, because why not, right? Yeah. I see these events where, like, Roger will play. Uh, obviously, the Bill Gates thing, I think, is that's for charity. I don't that's think he's, charity. I don't think he's collecting a ton of money for that, or if any at all. But, like, when you see him playing Sampras, right, and they have their little headsets on, and they're on a court 
and there are people there. It's not a packed house like Arthur Ashe behind me right now. That's actually not really packed either, but there aren't even that many people at these events. And I don't know that he's necessarily doing so much of that today, but I have seen him do his fair share. Obviously, Rafa does it. Obviously, those are paid appearances. How do those events make money? Um, Maybe I'm just that naive. Like, are they are those extremely profitable events? I see Maria Sharapova does them, and obviously Novak comes out and he does his little bit where he acts about he right he, he mimics players, which we can talk about when we talk about this match or this tournament in particular. But any opinion or thoughts or sort of perspective on that business side of tennis? A lot of it is based on on like the sponsor model and. Like a quick example, because it's the one that I could think about the most clearly, uh, BMP Paribas, they are the bank. They're a huge sponsor and they have been in, in the tennis world. Um, they sponsor Indian Wells, you know, the fifth major. So there was a while where they would do, I think they called it like the BMP Paribas showdown or the BMP Paribas challenge. And here in New York City, they would have an exhibition in Madison Square Garden and be like on a weeknight in, you know, late February, March, right before Indian Wells. And, you know, it would be like, I remember Federer played Roddick or Serena Williams would be there. Uh, you would get, it's an exhibition. So I'm sure BMP Paribas is paying these players. And it's also a nice tie-in for Indian Wells. Like, oh, if you like this, like check out the, mm. you know, the BMP Paribas open. They're probably going to cover, you know, maybe their, their jet across the country to Palm Springs. Um, but I think it's just part of their, these companies like overall spend for an event like that you know, that that's just in the budget that they're got going it. to be paying. And then whatever, obviously they've got a, you know, Madison Square Garden's not cheap. But they're getting a cut too. Um, so they're, they're selling tickets and if it doesn't happen anymore, but it happened for a couple of years. So I'm sure somebody was making some money off of it. Somewhere. Yeah. I mean, obviously somebody is, if nothing else, it's a lost leader to promote an underlying cause or a bigger sort of corporate mission or whatever. But um, I just feel like as a fan, like, I don't want to pay for an exhibition. I want to see real competition. You know, I don't want to see a bunch of guys laughing at each other's you know, top spin on their serve or whatever, but that, that's just me. I'm clearly in the minority. Well, the, the great, I generally agree with you, but you had that great one. I don't think it was, it was an exhibition and I forget where it was, but it might've been the one at Madison Square Garden when Sampras and Agassi yes. like got into it. And there was like, like they're both mic'd up. And you, you hear them, it, it, it turned into one of those things where it's like, wait, are these guys like, like serious? Or are they kidding? And then you quickly realize, oh no, they are serious right now. Um, like, They're well, not actors. Them, yeah. Like one of them called the other cheap. And like, it was like, oh wow, this is like, this is happening. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I guess that's the uh, added bonus you might get. So, of all that. so but, that, that's the one exception, Brian, I'll give you. Like if I got that in an exhibition, I'll sign up. Like if, if uh, Roger and Novak could hash out their past matches um, and the moments that Roger was not too proud of or, or too excited by on the court, that would be content that I would pay for. Um, but just to see, see a bunch of guys hitting balls, it just, it seems, it's just, I don't know. It, there's, there's a, there's not the, the, the heft of competition that goes behind it, but it nevertheless is a, is a paid experience. And I just, I can't imagine they would be doing it for cheap. Like you'd have to pay Roger a lot of money to just smack balls around with somebody, you know? So like they have to sell. X number of tickets. They got to get X number of corporate sponsors for everybody to feel good about it at the end of the day. But yeah, to your point, there's not that many of them. They happen. Madison Square Garden's a unique venue. Obviously, there's that. There's something in the summer in the city on a schedule. But I think one thing that it's safe to say is, given the new normal, 
any opportunity for a professional athlete or a professional to earn some fees is not going to be frowned upon. It's going to be actually welcomed. And I don't know how you feel about this, but that, uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but the Patrick Moradoglu, is that? Yeah. Uh, he's still Serena's coach, by the way, right? Yes. He's coming up with this new business model for tennis where it's sort of like the gamification of tennis, where it's more experiential for the fan, especially if you're in a situation where there can't be fans in the stands, which is actually leads me to my final question for you before we move on to the U.S. Open. Tennis with no fans. Um, is this going to help the game? Is this going to harm the game? And will there be innovations like what Patrick Mortoglu is doing going forward? Well, the cynical answer is uh, if you watch enough tennis over the course of the year, some of these events in far-flung places, uh, there are no fans anyway. So it's uh, not going to be a big adjustment there. But on the whole, you know, watching a major final with no fans, it'll be strange. But I think it's everybody understands why it's like that. So I, I think that the fact that everybody can look at it as a one-off, um, we'll see what what ideas, you know, the USTA and ESPN and all these different entities that broadcast it have in terms of boosting the atmosphere a bit. I think it'll be great to be able to hear a little bit more from the players. You're able to hear them a, a fair amount in tennis anyway because the courts are so well-miked. Yeah. Um, so I think that'll only get better. Uh, it'll be fun to, yeah, just hear kind of that that up-close, like, intimacy of it, as intimate as an empty 20,000-seat stadium can be. Uh, but where it's still two guys or two girls going head to head on court. Um, I think that'll be unique for this year. Do you think tennis is too slow? Um, the reason I ask that is because that's one of the reasons for these innovations. They're trying to say that fans are old. Uh, the, the average fan is old, right. but we have to skew the game younger. And one of the ways that you do that is you embed graphical overlays on the screen and you show like shiny objects and like l the, trajectories of the balls and you know um you incorporate betting you bring it more to the front you know uh, as far as like an interactive sort of fantasy component um back to my question like is tennis too slow um you know the actual sport like i i don't think it is but i Me think either. there are but i'm an old man i'm old school you know like I, same same yeah um but there are things that i it's not so much that it's slow but just that need to come up to pace. And that's why I would say the biggest, most direct argument about that right now, you know, we saw a serve clock introduced over the last two years just to speed it up between points. But the one ongoing argument, and I wouldn't be surprised if we get there at some point, is bringing uh, the men to best of three sets in majors, you know, like they, like the women do and like the men do the rest of the year. More pressure. Because the best of a best of five set match just it, it just takes too long. Like it's great when you've got an epic, but not every five set match or even four set match is an epic for that matter. Like last year's U.S. Open final, Nadal and Daniil Medvedev. Like it was, there was plenty of drama. It was exciting. Nadal was up two sets to love, blows it. They go to a fifth, but like it wasn't the most high quality match ever. That said, it would have been over in straight sets if it was a best of three sets. So I like the best of five, um, but I understand why people want to change it. Just it's tough, you know, it's a big reason why they built a roof at the US Open. When these TV companies are giving you truckloads of money to broadcast the event, there better be an event to put on. Uh, so a roof ensures that there's always going to be play. And then if you move on a little bit beyond that, you can look and say, okay, well, if you're gonna have a best of five match, I mean, that could go four hours and it messes up your whole schedule. But 
a best of three, it keeps everything moving a little bit tighter. Uh, so that's one thought as to uh, one thought. There are many thoughts as to why they should go to best of three, but that's one in terms of the, the TV perspective. I feel like a lot of players would be against it, especially if the money changed. The money of a five setter is what is part of the sort of the allegiance to old things or to the resistance to change. Part of it is, oh, if you're, you're going to pay us less money, we don't want to do it. Isn't that what's going on with baseball right now? They're fighting over how many games to play. And isn't that because they want to play more games because more games equals more money? Yeah, well, baseball, it's unique, obviously, because they're, they're going to prorate the salaries based on the games they've missed because of the pandemic. Yeah. I don't think, though, in tennis, that if they went to best of three, that the money would... Ch- like, they're not saying, like, we're going to pay you less. Okay. It's... um, I think there might be some players who are have that concern that, that this might try to be moved on through the back door down the road. But as of right now, no, there there hasn't been rumblings of that. It's less work for them. I mean, I, I'm saying that sort of facetiously because not every match goes to a five set goes to five sets, but less work, same pay. Let's go. That's it's <laughs> a common argument. Um, okay, let's rewind. Put our 2007 hats on. Coming into the U.S. Open, Roger lost the Canada Masters final to Novak, um, who he plays in the U.S. Open final a little bit down the line here. How pivotal was that victory for Novak? It was huge, uh, especially in, in a third set tiebreak over Roger, best of three matches we just talked about. Um, and to to break through and win that Masters title in Canada against Federer. We talked before, as we started talking about Djokovic more and more, just how you know he's not afraid of Federer. And you can see that really from the beginning. And this is another example of that, because not only are you not afraid of him, but here you've got an actual scalp. And to do it, on not quite the biggest stage in tennis, but one of the bigger stages, a Masters final. And it's not like Roger had an off day. Like he he took it to him, or he outlasted him in you know a, a three-set tiebreak. Um, so th- this is huge for Djokovic just to you know get through with that Masters title. Um, he had won Miami earlier that year. So now he's got two hardcourt Masters in 2007, and he is going into this U.S. Open as probably the the second best threat uh, to to beat Federer, maybe not to be, put the, let me rephrase that, the second best chance to win the tournament because Nadal was still not quite there yet on hard court. Roddick had not done it against Federer in a while, so you're maybe discounting him. Um, do you believe in a in a Davidenko type of player? I, I think you're going to pick a hot Djokovic who had just beaten Federer on this surface two weeks earlier over that. So huge for Djokovic in what was a, a pretty monumental year and still a very young career. He just turned 20 yes. earlier in, in uh, 2007. I think that's what you said. Two, two points you made that make this all the more fascinating is that he did literally come from out of nowhere to be the second threat behind Rafa Nadal. And he's only 20 years old. You know, he obviously lost this final. Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But he, he, was, right, he was right with him the whole time. I watched the whole match. Uh, yesterday, and I was like, "Wow, this guy's got so many break chances." And if there's just if just one of these break chances goes his way, and he gets, I think he had five set points uh, that he, that he on his serve on his serve that he squandered. That was you could chalk that up to being twenty. You could chalk that up to nerves. You could chalk that up. I'm, I have I have some questions for you about things that Roger Federer said before the match. You know he 
has a tendency. All these top players, man. Uh, Nadal last week, they have the tendency to say things that don't come out <laughs> right. And uh, he he didn't really show nerves. He, 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 he squandered five opportunities. But you tell me which one of those five he looked flustered or, he, or flummoxed. He double faulted once or twice. It, obviously key positions, but he didn't look shaken or broken or it, there was something about him that made me feel like he was one of those break points away from it being a completely different match. But let's save that. Roger shrugs off a loss as he is very good at doing to win at Cincinnati and he beat James Blake there. Just to go back, um, because I feel like this episode is going to turn into a, a dual track Djokovic, Federer Djokovic. Yes. Another example, you know, this is the not all the way seasoned Djokovic. You know, you win the biggest or arguably one of the biggest titles. Let's say the biggest title of your career. You beat Federer in Cincinnati. Then he goes out and loses his first match in Montreal the next week to Carlos Moya, who's a veteran player. And that just shows, you know, how demanding this sport is to bring it week in, week out. When you show up in Cincinnati, Canada's over. And for Federer to be able to shake, like, it's not so much that the, the loss in the final hurts him, but just to be able to produce another run to the final. You're playing deep in the tournament, pressure points. That's the consistency that we talk about that's just so impressive for Roger. 100%. Roger's road to the final, Brian. Not a lot of highlights here, but want to spend some time with John Isner. First round, Scoville Jenkins, American player, never really quite broke out. Not even good enough to be a journeyman, I would say. Uh, He's currently a tennis coach at the University of Wisconsin. What do you make of college tennis programs. They aren't pathways to the pros, clearly. Oh, what do you make of their existence? No, I disagree. They are. I mean, you we're going to talk about John Isner. They are absolutely now pathways to the pros. Um, Isn't Isner the outlier, though? How many college pros? Was He was at the time. Um, yeah, look, I mean, like a top player is is not going to college. But when you look at the players who have come through college, and then become very good pros. Kevin Anderson. That list is, that, that list is growing. Yeah, Kevin Anderson, Steve Johnson, uh, obviously John Isner. Uh, you're you're seeing it too from guys from other countries who came to play in the U.S. at U.S. colleges. I was talking to a, a former college coach, and he was saying, if you look at a college tennis roster, I mean, you'll see mostly or many international kids. And these coaches are saying, I mean, if you're a college tennis coach, you're this European kid. You're going to be recruiting oftentimes, or a foreigner is going to be just more mature than an American kid. Um, So you can, like, you just feel better taking them. Like that might not be the most popular thing to say, but that that's where it's gone. Now where it could be going and you start to worry is when you look at all these universities facing budget crunches because of the pandemic. And you've already seen a handful of college tennis programs announced that they're ending. Uh, Several schools have said that not at the, at the tippy top levels, but you're, you're seeing it. So you, you do worry about the future, but I mean, college tennis has been huge over the last 10, 15 years. You've got really strong programs in the ACC, the SEC, the big 12, some of the Western schools, obviously like USC with Steve Johnson. So you, you are seeing it a lot. Um, it, it is proven to be quite the pathway. I was talking to a guy from England a couple of years ago and he, maybe had like a handful of ATP points, but he said he's a little bit older in terms of missing the boat on going to U.S. college. He said, I wish I had gone to U.S. college. It would have been perfect for my game just to be able to go there. You get 
physically mature and stronger and bigger and better. You're living on your own. You're playing pretty high level tennis. Would have been perfect for me. There's a lot of people like that who I think missed the boat previously, and now they they've caught the boat essentially, and it's it's working out well for them to the point where even if they're not going to go win tour, win majors on the ATP or WTA tours, they're turning them into pretty nice careers. Sounds like you're a clear proponent of the collegiate system then for tennis. Definitely. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, um, it's a bonus to a lot of people. Second round, Paul Cap DeVille, career high 76 in 2009. Uh, is it just me or does that name just make you think of Coupe DeVille? It does. Um, I actually had to do a double take the first time I saw Paul Cap DeVille's name. It doesn't sound like a, a guy from Chile. No, like it, it, it sounds not. like a French guy. Yeah. Um, but a straight set uh, defeat. He came through qualifying, got to the second round. I mean, that's impressive in itself. And it also gives you a nice paycheck, nice handful of points. And you get something you'll always remember. I'm sure Paul Capdeville probably today, as we sit here, record this, has had somebody ask him about the time he played Roger Federer on Arthur Ashe Stadium. So, hey, why not? Absolutely. Third round. John Isner took the first set in a tiebreak against Federer, which is something to talk about by itself. I think he was a wild card in this tournament. He was. And this guy's a stat machine. He's got a bunch of records that I kind of want to run through with you, but I want to kind of have you sort of like lay the foundation on John Isner. He holds records for longest professional match, which I want to kind of rattle off with you. Um, He's never won a major, which is just kind of how I want to, where I want to place you, but he's 25 on the earnings leaderboard. What's your point of view? What's your sort of perspective on John Isner? Um, he's a guy who is obviously blessed with some physical gifts. His height, six foot ten. Um, Did he play basketball? Does he have a basketball history? Do I know? don't. He might have. He does that bounce between his leg every time he serves it, which might have come from a basketball background. Okay, uh, like he's dribbling the ball. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's made the most of his physical gifts. I mean, he's got maybe the greatest serve of all time, or at least the most like unreturnable serve of all time. It's a huge statement. Yeah. I mean, he's a huge guy. Like look at his, his summer of 2007 is a good example. He loses, I believe in the NCAA singles final. Uh, he played his college tennis at Georgia loses in the final, gets a wild card into the tournament. We just talked about in Washington. I think it was the leg Mason at that point goes all the way to the final. It's like his first big pro tournament loses to Roddick in the final. So there's some momentum building around Isner going into this US Open. He kept playing then. The, he got some wild cards into the Masters events, played in New Haven, the other tournament we were talking about that was a, a joint event back in 2007. So he comes into here. He w- beats, I believe, Yarko Niemann, who's a, a, a very good player, takes him out in the first round. Because the other thing you remember all these guys are seeing him for the first time, including Roger Federer, whereas you're not seeing guys six foot 10 hammering serves at you like that. I was in the stadium. I remember it well. It was Labor Day weekend when he won that first set and the place goes nuts um, in the tie break. And it was a very strange day because I think Sharapova had already lost on Ash as the defending champion to a very young uh, Agnieszka Radwanska. So it was just like one of those days where like, it's like watching the NCAA tournament, college basketball, and you know, this top seed loses, then you're watching yeah. another one's on the ropes. So, I mean, theoretically, Federer's on the ropes. I don't think anybody in the building thought he was going to lose the match, but to see this 22-year-old, I think at that point, maybe 21, John Isner uh, 
having the upper hand against the world number one. It was just one of those cool, really unforgettable things. He's made the most of his his physical abilities. I mean, he's been a – you wouldn't look at him and think he's a great clay player, but he's been very good on clay. Um, he was gotten a doll into a fifth set at the French Open once, which is remarkable. Won a Masters title in Miami, so he got the breakthrough there. He's been to the ATP Finals, played the longest match of all time, which I think for a while – uh, sadly, that's like all he was being known for, which yeah. is probably unfair to him because he he's be- he's not like a one of those like historical anomalies. Like he's a better player than that. There's actually data, sort of qualitative data for that to make sense, right? Because he's the best server of all time, which means he's going to hold serve. Okay, right. And the reason his matches go long is because nobody's going to beat his serve. So you have to get a break. Somebody has to break. Um, and more often than not, he's going to go to tie breaks. I was surprised to know that he wasn't the all-time tie-breakingest player. He hasn't been in the most tie breaks, but it makes sense that matches are going to go long because something has to give, right? And his side is not going to give. It's just interesting to me, though, there are lesser players that have won Grand Slams. Okay, uh, right. take, take, take the big four out of the equation. How does the best server of all time not have one Grand Slam? And is it as easy as there's a big four in front of him? Yeah, that's a big reason why. And I mean, he's had some, some he's lost some matches that he probably shouldn't have lost at majors where he maybe had opportunities, not necessarily to win the tournament, but to go further. Like, you know, Philip Kohlschreiber, um, a couple of years, not in a row, but he frequently beat him at the US Open. It was this weird thing. Um, you know, with his physical gifts come some physical limitations. He's yes. six foot ten, so he's not going to be as fast, move as well as some of the other players. And once you get to a point where we talked about this before, very early in this series, when we talked about Roddick, when your serve is that good, you, it can't let you down. It's like you live by it, you die by it. Like if that serve, you know, if your opponent blocks a couple of them back and is able to just get a break point on you, you're in some trouble all of a sudden very quickly. So, so those types of things. I mean, he's a very he's got very good hands which is why he's been good on clay. I mean, maybe the most impressive win of his career was one of the most impressive things in the last decade of U.S. tennis. U.S. men Davis Cup 2012 on clay in Switzerland swept Federer, Vavrinka, and the rest of Switzerland 5-0. Uh, and it was Isner sent the opening statement of intent. He beat Roger in the singles. This is 2012, so I mean, yeah. he's more seasoned by this point. But that's one of the more impressive things we've seen in the last couple of years for U.S. Te- men's tennis. Here's some records that are just they just stand out, right? 113 aces in a single match. That record stands alone. 113 aces in a single match. Uh, like, I, I would be so demoralized if I was the opponent, is my point. Like, even on my serve, I would say, like, look, no matter what I do, there's going to be a Gatling gun coming at me in about three minutes here, like what is the point of going on and on against this guy? 113 aces. Well, that's misleading though, because I don't know if misleading is the longest match. It was, yeah. I mean, if you have three days to serve 113 aces and you're John Isner, you're going to take full advantage. Um, Okay. 60 aces a day. Yeah, exactly. Even still 60 aces a day. It's like, what are we doing? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, a, it's incredible. And then he had 85 aces in a single set. Again, this is all that same match, right, against Nicholas Mahout, which you mentioned. Right, I mean, that's the 70-68, so they're not playing a tiebreak. So it's a set that's longer than 
most mat than a lot of matches. Ninety-one games lost in a single match that he won, which is it's a this part of the reason why like his records and he gets a he gets a rap for this match is because of these quirky records that he's accumulated that nobody I don't think anybody will ever get that title away from him. Ninety-one games lost in a single match that he won. Um, two hundred and forty-six winners in a single match. Again, spread out over three days. And then the two matches that we were referring to, well, there's two matches that are the longest ever in history. They both were at Wimbledon. The first one was 11 hours, uh, a a little over 11 hours. And the second one was against Kevin Anderson. I watched most of that one, actually. I didn't watch the Mahout match because I didn't really care about Mahout at that time. I saw the highlight reel and so on and so forth. But the match that I actually watched, which did feel like an eternity, was the 2018 match against Kevin Anderson, which went about, I think, just under seven hours. And that was a semifinal. That was a semifinal. So, I mean, that yeah. match is, yeah, the stakes there are a lot higher. And that was Anderson uh, 26 24. Um, and then Anderson was absolutely cooked for the final. Um, because of the match, that, you think, or because of. Uh, 100%. Absolutely. And that's a bit, we, you know, we talked about ways to speed up tennis. Like the no tie break in the fifth set thing is like an anachronism that Wimbledon is corrected because I mean, that's, a, it's a different sport when that rule was made where it's not the physical in terms of both the way these guys are built and the way the equipment's built. Like it's a different sport. Yeah, so to it's have like that the rule, founding fathers never intended certain amendments to be the sound the way exactly. they sound today. Good comparison. Um, so to have that rule in place that like, that was one that made them realize like, okay, this, this needs to, modernize itself we need to tweak this so how do you feel about this this is the radical idea in tennis i think i think patrick moritoglu is behind it or one of the people behind it is that the score is what the score is at the at like after 90 minutes like if you're if it's six four or if it's six five you win the person with six wins like no it, that will that ever happen and is, does that sound good to you i don't it doesn't sound good to me no it'll never happen and we, we've talked about how one of the great things about tennis is you can't run out the clock and if you bring that in, that's part of the appeal. The clock. That's part of the appeal. Exactly. Um, so no, I, I don't think we'll ever get it. I mean, yeah, you might have these events like that Patrick Mortagla is doing right now with his ultimate tennis showdown. Um, but I, I don't, you're not going to see them doing that at Wimbledon. Yeah. By, uh, like uh, okay. a format like that's that. That's good to know. What, what he's talking about seems to me to be kind of like a TV event. You know, it is. this is, this, it's, 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 it's television. It's like unscripted TV and you have to put a time limit on that because television works in blocks. But with the actual, when there's actual stakes on the line, when there's actual history on the line, if it goes three days, it goes three days. I mean, how many times has, how many times has an Isner match happened, right? And there, there's never been an 11 hour match before. I don't, I think it's safe to say in our lifetime that that probably won't happen again unless there's, Correct, unless Isner plays himself, Right. They've, they've changed the rules too. So now it's oh, that's true. Now what, the, so what was it before? And then what went into effect after the Isner match? Well, we saw it last year at Wimbledon. So before it was Wimbledon, uh, did not have a fifth set tie break. Um, you would just play it out. You had to win by two. So yeah. that's why he, he won when he did. So then they brought in a tie break and we saw that on display in last year's final with Federer against, uh, Djokovic. Novak Djokovic. And the way they did the tie break there is, you know, the U.S. Open goes right to the tiebreak at six all in the fifth set, like it would for any other set. Um, Wimbledon, they do it at 12 all. So they'll, they'll keep playing for a little bit, yep. like normally, 
uh, win by two, get it to 12 all. And then instead of going to seven, like in a standard tiebreak, Wimbledon went to 10. You still have to win by two. So it's a, it's a little bit different. It's their own thing, which I, I kind of like. Um, but I, I like that they have a tiebreak now. You need a, a definitive ending, uh, like a, a finish line in sight that the players can push towards. Yeah, no, I like the innovation too. I just, uh, I just didn't like the outcome uh, of that match in particular. Uh, okay. Isner, 2-6 and six against Roger, career. 2-10 and 10 against Novak. 8-4 and four against Kevin Anderson who's one of my more favorite players on the tour. So I was surprised to see a winning record. They're not surprised, but they're two big giants. And it kind of, uh, you would, I would expect a little bit of parody there. Uh, to round out Federer's path to the final, we got Feliciano Lopez, Andy Roddick, and Nikolai Devidenko, who is our so close but so far away guy uh, on game Federer. Uh, especially that Roddick match. Roddick played really well in this match. Like the final the year before, I think he actually got a set off Federer. Um, here he loses in straight sets. So you look at it, you think like, you know, what, you know, standard, but he, he played well. This was just, you know, Federer at another level, this tournament. I think we mentioned it as we were teasing this episode, this was Darth Federer where he was playing all those yes. matches in the all black. Um, so it was a, a cool one of, I, I may be his best look, but certainly one of his better looks. I definitely think so. And I have a thing about that when we get to the actual final. So, okay. Novak's road real quickly. We mentioned at the top, he was 20 years old coming in. Doesn't have a really difficult field, but you've got Haas. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's not Tommy Haas. It's a different... Robin Hase. Yeah, Hase. Uh, 2-1-3. Uh, had a little bit of difficulty with Roddick Stepanek in the second round. Five-setter. I think that I watched like the three-minute like condensed reel on it just to see what happened. Um, I think he actually needed this match to sort of push him through in a way, if that makes sense. Uh, I think you've even talked about this with Roger, a couple of matches early in the, in the, in the tournament or in the fortnight helps you to sort of get your feet set and kind of blast through to the second week. And this was that for him. Did you have any thoughts on that five setter with Stepanek, but beyond the fact that it was a good proving ground for him? Exactly that. It's a good proving ground. I mean, Stepanek's a great doubles player. He won a couple of majors, won an Olympic medal. Um, so to get that like veteran test, there you go. Uh, we talked about that seasoning, like coming off of Canada, the title, and you then you meet a veteran like Carlos Moya, you lose your first match in Cincinnati. Like to to be able to get that and pass the test is very helpful. Next was Del Potro, who we dispatched one three four, Monaco in four sets, Carlos Moya revenge four six one, and then David Ferrer uh, four four three. Who beat Nadal? Uh, it would have been a Nadal Djokovic uh, semifinal, which could have been interesting. Any thoughts on Ferrer? Any thoughts on the Nadal Ferrer matchups over the years in general? Kind of set us up for the final between Roger and Novak. I mean, Ferrer, we talk about players who get the most out of their abilities, like John Isner's on one side of that spectrum where That's a great he's, point. Really, he's really tall. So he's got this gift of a serve, but then because he's so tall, can can limit some other areas of his game. I mean, Ferrer's not really born with those, with any kind of giant physical gift. He's just the ultimate like scrapper grinder. Um, and to do what he did in his career, like he's at the back, like this was the time we're getting close to the time where he was in deep in the second week of like every single major. Yeah. And it, it's just really impressive that he was able to, to do that. Like he's a guy who you would think 
based on his ranking, was like deep in every tournament, but he only got to one major final. He won one Masters title, got to the tour finals once, but he's there all the time. And that's like one of those ultimate respect things. Does he get a bid for the Hall of Fame? No. No, one, one major final and one Masters title is not, not there. Del Potro, yes, though, because of just the, even just the one U.S. Open. I mean, I think he'll get in, but I don't necessarily think he should. Okay. What about Carlos Moya? Ah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, he was number one in the world. Yeah, I, I think he... A former number one does get in. Former number one who's got major titles. Yeah. All right, the final, Brian. Rogers' 10th consecutive Grand Slam final, which is a ridiculous thing to say out loud. I don't think Novak has done that, and I don't think Rafa has done that. Is that accurate? 10 consecutive Grand Slam finals. No, it's absolutely. That's one of the unique things about the greatness of Federer, the, the consistency. Nobody else has done that. I mean, he's going for the third time in four years winning three out of four majors. I mean, that's crazy. Roger, as you mentioned, is in all black, all black everything, head to toe. The look that started it all, Brian, Darth Federer. Any history on the nickname? Who gets credit? I don't know if anybody, I'm maybe somebody for the New York Post. Like, I, I don't know if anybody in particular. Deserves to be shouted out because it's an impressive nickname that stuck. I mean, it's not, it wasn't the hardest nickname to come up with. Yeah. That's, talk about something that stuck. That's why I'm thinking maybe the New York Post. It's actually a good, uh, let's see. I don't know who actually got, I, I'm going to guess it was the New York Post. It's something that Post would do. If anybody hears that or if knows otherwise, you can let us know. I do want to go through all of his looks. We still have some time yet on the pod, but the Darth Federer all black version does manifest itself in other tournaments down the line here. But I think this is his best one purely because it's the OG Darth Federer. Yes. Any thought on Novak's shirt? The Adidas sort of colorful, structural, geometric, architectural looking shirt, and also his camp donning the same shirt. Yeah, that was a thing they did for a while, which I also think is why, you know, the the relationship with Federer and Djokovic and the Djokovic camp was never quite as warm as it was with Nadal. Like, you know, they're like the the overeager parents at Little League. Um I I always enjoyed that. I think it's entertaining. My favorite Djokovic looks were I think 2010 when he gets back to the final here in 2011. He had some really interesting like Sergio Tacchini shirts. Yeah. Um, that were unique. I remember his father wearing a t-shirt with like Djokovic pumping his fist and like an eagle. I'll, I'll find that when we go down the road because I know there okay. are pictures of it. Um, it looks like a shirt you would have bought like, you know, at the boardwalk, like <laughs> like a, like somebody made it for you. Um, Ocean City or something? Yeah, exactly. I wasn't sure if you'd get the Ocean City or Wildwood reference, but yes, um, I enjoyed that. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good look for Novak. It's unique. It's different. He's not trying to be Federer. He's his own guy. And we're seeing that on display Yeah, here. One of I'm always interested with Djokovic, how many clothing, uh, brands he's worn. Like it's like Nike went all in early on Federer, all in on the doll. Yeah. Um, so Djokovic was kind of left to his own devices and Adidas actually picked like Andy Murray over him. Wow. So Djokovic was sort of on his own. He went to Sergio Tacchini, but they had problems. I think like mass produce, like the clothes just like weren't 
going out like yeah. at, at a scale that was appropriate for like the world number one. He was with Uniqlo first, right? Then he went to Uniqlo for a while. Yeah. And then he got a little bit more traditional uh, with Lacoste. I think his Lacoste stuff is great. Yeah, awesome. I think the last couple of years, yeah. he's looked very sharp. The Uniqlo, the Uniqlo stuff looked pretty good too, but the Lacoste is, is sharp. And then he has, he always had all the patches, the sponsor patches on his arms. Guinot, is that how you say it? I don't know, but yeah, everybody's got Guinot, those. Guinot or Guinot. It's one of those. Rafa and Roger don't do that. Like they, they don't have all the brands, all the paraphernalia on their sleeves. But uh, there's no there's no knock there. Novak had to get what he could get. That's so you know. a little uh, back business of tennis Please. conversation. That is a Nike rule. So Nike's thing is that if you wear Nike, you can't have anything else on the shirt. Like Cere- that's why they pay more. Yeah, um, like Ser- you know, think about the like you're Serena Williams. I mean, she's getting plenty of money from Nike, but think about how much money Serena Williams could charge another company to like wear, you know, a logo on her sleeve. She doesn't do it. Sharapova, who was maybe the, the greatest female endorser in history, nothing. She still 90. is killing endorsements, by the way. Even the one exception, and this shows where the world's priorities are. Lee Na, the great Chinese player, she was allowed to have like a Mercedes logo somewhere, like I think on her sleeve or on her chest. And that's the value of the Chinese market to, I would think, Nike and just to great bargaining by Lee Nan or agent just to say like, oh yeah, sure. But I'm wearing something. I'm making more money basically by wearing a different patch. That's a Nike thing. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Sergio Tacchini, Uniqlo, Lacoste is obviously the best. And that was a, that's a, that was a great deal for him. But there was another brand in there. Adidas, we mentioned. Diodora. Did he wear Diodora for a while? Novak never did. No, I was a big, I think I was a big, was that David Nalbandian or was he like topper? It was one of those South American okay. brands. Um, uh, Stan Walrinka wears the Yonex. Yes. Like the, they make, I mean, rackets, but they also make clothing. Those Caroline Wozniacki was sponsored by them too, I believe. Or uh, no, she was a D. She was big Adidas. She was she like Stella McCartney. Yeah. The other, I was actually surprised though. Since Federer has left Nike, I always assumed you would see him with more stuff on his shirt. But I don't yeah. know if maybe that's in the Uniqlo contract that he doesn't do it. Um, but I always thought that like maybe that was a reason he left Nike. But then when he didn't have it on the shirt, um, oh, that's I interesting. Was that's surprised interesting. by that. Well, you just be the, it could be the same deal. You, could, you know, maybe you know. Uh, it also it doesn't, it's not it's an eyesore for 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 one thing to have all that. But if you're gonna have exclusivity, you got to pay for it, right? So maybe that's his thing. Yeah, I like it. Can be usually it's done tastefully. Like Andy Murray always had a couple of companies like on the sleeve, and yeah, it, I thought it blended well. Uh, great example. Isner for a while was, uh, he would wear a Bass Pro Shops hat. I always liked that. <laughs> the best was when Isner, I'm not sure if he still is, was wearing Lacoste with Bass Pro Shops. And like, I can't think of a more like divergent pair of like yeah, I know, totally, audiences than the totally different people who wear Lacoste and people who are going to Bass Pro Shops. The other one was uh, Agnieszka Radwanska, second time we've mentioned her today, for I think it was just one summer was sponsored. She talked about how much she loved the Cheesecake Factory. So she played with a, on her visor, she had a Cheesecake Factory patch. Fascinating. Erotic wore Lacoste for a while too, right? Yeah, at the end, he was uh, Lacoste. Yeah. Lacoste yeah. has got good stuff. Um, okay, enough plugging all these corporations, yeah. man, uh, that aren't paying our bills. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, okay. Uh, Maria Sharapova's in Novak's booth. 
that was significant, right? That the, the, the camera cut to her four or five times. She was well aware of the fact that the camera was on her. You could see her eyes kind of furtively looking up at the big screen. Uh, any context? They, they were in a, in a relationship. Were they just good friends? And, you know, t- talk about, like, players that are currently in the game at the tournament playing, showing up for other players' matches. Um. Yeah, it was a little odd. Like they're friends. I think Sharapova later said, I don't know if it was in her book or doing interviews, how they they once like went on a date. I think they were younger. Like okay. I think Djokovic Djokovic had his girlfriend now wife by this point. Um, but in terms of players showing up, yeah, you'll see play. Like I, I was at the Australian Open last year, 2019, and we were watching, I honestly forget who it was. If we were watching Svitolina and Monfils was in the box or vice versa. I think it was we were watching Alina Svitolina play. And my, the commentator I was working with, like off mic said, is that, is that Monfils in her box? And I thinking like, no, no way. Sure enough, it was. So they asked her about it on court and she basically said like, oh yeah, we're dating now. Yeah. Um, so it's usually a, a big sign when you see that. I mean, Kim Kleisters was uh, briefly engaged to Leighton Hewitt. So yep. you would see uh, them in each other's box. I mean, Roger and Mirka Federer, they met. Uh, at the Olympics in yeah. 2000, when Mirka played professionally, they were representing Switzerland. Uh, injuries ended her career, but that's where they met. So, yeah, they're, I mean, you've got men and women, young men and women, physically fit, traveling the world together, uh, living in basically a, a different world. So you, you kind of know what's going to happen. It was just interesting to see her there, uh, knowing what we know now, right? Looking back through time capsule. And uh, you mentioned Mirka, obviously. I got to say, like Roger and Mirka, they're like the first family of tennis. Like, ever if, if you've been watching tennis since 2002, uh, even before that, ever since 2002, you she's just been a fixture at all of his matches. And it's like you, watching, uh, watching tennis without seeing her is all it's almost there's almost like an incompleteness to it. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's part of the experience of watching tennis. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's part of why Federer is still out there and we hope he's back in 2021 um, because he's got like a good setup. Like he's talked about this a lot. I mean, they've got four kids, two sets of twins and they basically just take the whole show on the road. Of course they can afford can it afford too it. in terms of yeah. like childcare and uh, th- their accommodations. But so you've got every, like, you know, you get to the point now where you don't see Djokovic's wife. Nadal was just married. You don't see his wife at every tournament no. or Djokovic for that matter. You would see, you know, when Andy Murray was kind of at his peak when he was winning Wimbledon number one in the world, you would see his wife, Kim, her father is a, a pretty high profile tennis coach. So she grew up around the sport. Yeah. So she was, I would say, the closest thing to Mirka Federer, um, colorfully so at some of the times where she's not as stoic as Mirka. Like Mirka's yeah. had some moments like she called Stan Walrinka a crybaby um, <laughs> at the ATP finals. But like same with there's a great YouTube video of Andy Murray's wife. I think it Wimbledon with some like talking to herself, but she happened to be picked up on camera and some expletives towards, I think it was Thomas Burdick um, that I recommend checking out. So it's fun just to get that look. No other sport. Do you see it like you do in tennis where they're as close and you're basically watched like they are in tennis? No, I absolutely think that what you said is accurate. Here's a picture, a screen grab that I took from the match against Djokovic. She's checking her watch. <laughs> it's just a weird. That's, it's and just that's a, Gavin Rossdale to yeah, the left. Yeah, it's who just was a funny a, a shot. Staple where, in the box at that point. Are we going to be able to make it to our dinner reservation tonight in Manhattan? Uh, that was one of the funnier shots of her. 
but no, she's, fun. A, she's a foundational rock for him. hundred percent. Yeah. It's always fun looking at the, uh, the Federer box to see who's in there and really any player's box, especially Federer, like playing at the U S open. You've now got the last couple of years, banana Wintour. She's a staple. You'll get another random celebrity popping up. Uh, it is, uh, it's like a fun parlor game. Do you know, just fun trivia. Do you know who the other person was? That was a, a person of interest in Novak's box for this final. Uh, so his parents, Sharapova. There was one other A-lister, if you will, that was kind of a shock to me. So he, this is his. This is historic because he's the first Serbian man to get to a major final. Okay. Um, and this is a big time. This is like the ascendancy of Serbian tennis with Djokovic, Tipsarovic, and on the women's side, Yelena yeah. uh, Jankovic would be number one in the world. Anna Ivanovic would win the French Open. So you're seeing like they are the the up and coming thing in tennis. Uh, give me a hint. This is a. I don't know this. Uh, the hint would be. You said a lister. Yeah. You talking to me? De Niro. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Was Robert the, De Niro is in Djokovic's box. Sitting with Djokovic's parents, right next to them. Wow. Yeah. I did not. Wow, that's excellent. I mean, you know, you can make a parallel like godfather two how he comes in and just sort of all of a sudden takes over the whole thing and then he's running the family and Djokovic kind of came in took over the whole tennis thing and now he's running the show so maybe there's a loose parallel to be made there um coming no, you're on not buying it. no i i am i just i was very anti I'm, i've changed I'm, i've matured i've grown up i've had kids since all this stuff but i was very hostile towards novak and uh and whenever he played roger and um, I'm looking back at it with a very sort of like, uh, you know, academic eye now, if you will. Um, but I remember, I remember seeing the people in his box and just going, "Ugh, I'm never going <laughs> to, I'm never going to watch another one of their movies or I'm never going to play another one of their songs or whatever it is, but I get it. And I got to say, looking back at him, I will say this now with total clarity and, 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 and total, um, like this is a totally authentic statement. He was really savvy and really humble and really like professional for a 20 year old tennis player when he walked down the court the way he embraced roger afterwards there were, I could sense a little bit of sarcasm there but it was good like he was he he checked off all the boxes and there was no judgment he was coached well and his parents did right by him i mean he was a, he was a total consummate professional roger however made me kind of cringe walking out onto the court um you know how they do the behind the camp before they walk out. They they talk to uh, Mary Joe Fernandez. Mary Joe probably. Fernandez, thank you yeah. for billing me out of that. Right before they walk out of the tunnel, they have a little pep talk with her or a little check in. Yeah, interview. Yeah, fun fact by the way, Mary Joe Fernandez is married to Roger Federer's agent. Just yes, uh, I knew that when gossip, I was researching yes. Roger Federer's agency, which is based in like some small town in Cleveland, and I was trying right. to figure out who does all of Roger's endorsements. It's this little company that he created that's run by his agent at, who left IMG to start the agency. Right. At this time, it's still IMG. It's still but IMG. It's Tony Godsick was the yeah. guy. And now it's, yeah, Team 8 uh, is the team name eight. of the Thank you. agency. Yeah. Um, and, and the Laver, Rod Laver Cup is their primary sort of uh, trophy business right now. Is that yes. Right? right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and they also rep players. They rep, uh, don't tell me, don't uh, tell me, don't tell me, Del Potro. Yeah, Del Potro. I think there's been rumors that they're, like Sasha Zverev was in a legal dispute with his agent and there was a discussion that he was going to eventually wind up with teammate. Yeah. I don't know if we're there yet, but is this a little bit of a, is this a little bit of the LeBron James model? They're trying to like, yeah, 
Yeah, same thing. Same yeah, it's it, it's similar. Yeah, um, and it's uh, in, it's pioneering, right? There's no other player that really has that cachet or that that sort of heft to do something like this. No, I'm trying to think. Um, like Agassi's never repped players, and no, no, Sampras no. and um, yeah, and like I mean, Federer's not going to be repping players. No, but, but he's, like, he's, he's going to own the company yeah. that does. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it is unique. So coming onto the court, Roger mentions how he beat. It's like, how do you feel about playing Novak, whatever? And he said, well, I beat Novak quite comfortably in Australia. And like, was that really necessary? (laughs) I mean, yeah, he had beat him quite comfortably, but the most recent time they played, he had lost. So it's like, he's got to like, go out on the court with like that positive thought. Like okay. I'm not thinking about like he, like if you, if you heard Federer say there, like, well, you know, last time, uh, like I, he, he got me like, you're going to think like, Oh, he's, he's nervous. But if he's projecting that confidence, um, I don't know if Djokovic heard him say that, but th- it just creates a different like aura. And it's probably how he creates his own little aura too, just to be able to say like, yeah, I'm like I, I am number one. I beat this guy at a major. Stakes were high earlier this year. That's what I'm thinking about right now. When I beat him quite comfortably. Fair is that if that's right or fair is is a completely different argument. But I can understand why he did it. No, it's that old Kanye West thing. Someone walks into his house and says, "Hey, Kanye, why do you have a picture of yourself on your fireplace?" And he said, "Well, if I don't believe in myself, then who the hell will?" Exactly. You know, <laughs> it's like. It's yeah, you, it's, it's, it is, it's not narcissism, you know, and I've actually talked this over with like professionals about it. Like, is it narcissistic to do these certain things? And no, it's, it's, you have to be your own hype man. Cause if you're not, no one else will be. So, right. I see what you're saying. And I'm with you. It just made me cringe because of what we know about Novak Djokovic after this final. And I almost wish like karmically Roger, if you had just said he's a great young talent and we look forward to many matches together that you could have been sitting on the other side of the ledger as opposed to what we have now. That's just me being the fan that I am. Um, Then the broadcast continues, Brian. Everybody's on high with Roger. Um, I don't know if Dick Enberg said this or who said it, but someone said, is Novak the class clown or the real deal? And I feel like a lot of people are eating crow on that statement too. But again, what do you know when you don't know, right? But it, looking back, that was also a cringeworthy statement for me coming into this match. See, I disagree. I think that was a very valid statement. And it was a valid statement for about two or three years because that was, I don't know if it was like a defense mechanism, but that was with Djokovic. You know, we talked about like those exhibition type things. Like they have the kids day before the US Open, the yeah. Arthur Ashe kids day. So you'd see Djokovic and he would do like impersonations of other players that didn't always sit well with the other players, um, men and women, uh, like he did with Sharapova, I think, or Serena. Um, and it was like those kinds of things. And then like after the match, he'd be doing like, just kind of like not looking like you would expect like a, a top 10 guy in the world to like carry themselves. So it really was a valid question. He has certainly cut that out now. He now does that thing with his heart after each win, which you, you, I'll leave that to your own interpretation if you like that or not. There's a PR um, company that he hired that told him to do that. Yeah. But that's what he does now. But like, I, that's still better than like trying to like clown around. Like maybe, right. you know, he's 20 years old. Maybe it is like a defense mechanism, but it, it was a valid question, I, I think, at that point. Yeah, he has certainly uh, proven us all wrong, but he's also changed. So it's not like he 
is acting that way and has gone on to the success he's gone on to. Important to note in this tournament, Brian, he was not persona non grata. There was no animosity towards him. Uh, the crowd actually quite enjoyed him at the end of the match. They were cheering Novak in the stands. Um, so it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see in the next uh, few episodes that we do on this, where that sort of changed and what, what were some of the moment moments that led to it. But in this particular tournament, uh, the crowd was very into the match and there was no sort of, there was none of that feeling that I was describing to you a moment ago about how I felt about him and his box and all that stuff. Right. Um, so there's no highlight reel here. I'm just going to kind of go through a couple of things here. We mentioned it at the top. This was a match of breakpoint opportunities lost. Um, <clears throat> at 5-5 in the first set, Novak gets a breakpoint, tries to crush the return, and it goes long. I kind of admired him for going for broke against Roger. He wanted to keep the point short, and I respected that. Again, 20-year-old, he had a lot of poise that I did not expect to see again watching this match over. Um, he gets a second chance and he converts it and he goes up six, five goes up six, five set point. Yes. Then he gets to triple set point. Okay. He's up 40 love and Roger does something incredible. Something that I don't think I've seen him do very often. And, and tell me if, if something comes to mind for you on him doing an equivalent of this, he comes back to win the game and heads into a tie break on triple set point. Uh, on Novak's serve. Um, he fought off a total of five set points. Talk about that from Novak's side and talk about that from Roger's side. I mean, if you're fed, what's funny is too how we've seen this kind of flipped over certainly the Wimbledon final last year, the last huge encounter with them. Um, you know, the, the egregious one was the Djokovic double fall on the break point, and that's what sent it to the tie break. So he had all those... Um, opportunities and to let them go by the wayside at that point, once that, that goes away, it's such a mental blow that not only did I, did I not close this out, I double faulted the worst way to do it. I didn't even get the ball in the court and I've just given the number one player in the world, this huge opportunity. Um, Uh, I got to tell you this quick anecdote real quick. Um, We were talking about double faults. I was playing on the court. I'm taking my son every day at four o'clock. We, Basically, I'm his coach. I, I show, sent you a picture. Yes. And he he takes the... We're talking about double faults. And we're also talking about tennis fans a moment ago. like And like fans, no fans. He asks me, he's like, Daddy, he's six. Why don't I have to wear that? Why aren't you making me wear the mask on the court? Because <clears throat> we wear the mask when we walk to the car and everything. Right. And, he, and I go, well, it's okay. It's just us on the court and it's completely secure. And tennis is like a social distancing sport. And it's the ultimate social distancing sport because the players are on other sides of the court, even though he and I are like really close to each other because he can barely get the ball over the net. But I'm like, this is a perfect social distancing sport. And his innocent question was, well, then why isn't everybody playing tennis? Because the courts are empty. <laughs> there's like, there's 12 courts in the place where we go and there were only two people on the courts. And it's such a great question. Like, why aren't there more people playing tennis, especially now? So anyway, I was serving to him and uh, I was I kept double faulting, and I was explaining to him what happens when you double fault. I have to move from one side of the court to the other. So anyway, that's my little sidebar anecdote. It's good. You're so smart. Okay, second set. Uh, Novak gets this is again this this kind of for the context part of this podcast. This could will is history rewritten if any of these things change. In the second set, 
he shrugs off what you said is one of the most debilitating things, a double fault, and he goes up 4-1 on Roger in the second set. Fed, of course, gets back. This is a straight set victory for him. Gets back to 4-4, which is also uncharacteristic for him, I gotta say, just having watched most of his matches. We don't usually see him get broken and then chip his way back. He kind of just chalks it up to a loss and focuses on the next set. Um, I will say, Vic, yeah, 4-1 is like the most misleading lead in tennis. Tell me why. Because it's really just one break of serve. So depending on who serves first, like if the server serves, next guy holds, okay, it's one all. It, it's just one break of serve. Like you just work your way up. So all of a sudden, if you, the next, like after you hold for four one, I'm not explaining this well. I, I'm no, aware no, no. Of that. I, 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 see, I, I totally get what you're saying. Theoretically, I'm talking about it from a moral point. Like I'm, like when you look at the scoreboard. Last episode, we saw him complaining to the Hawkeye uh, umpire. Look at the score. It's killing me, man. Four one optically looks bad, but I, I get what you're saying. I get what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, it's one like so. If he gives that break back, and then the opponent holds serve all of a sudden it's four three and we're right back to where we were like yeah you've got a lead but it's it's not what it looks like okay and then we get this i'm actually just going to jump onto the screen share real quick because it'll just be easier for me um the screen the tv cuts away to um a legends comparison so again if you're like team novak they're already pretty much projecting roger's going to win this match that was kind of the tenor so they cut away to this legend comparison which again, if you're Novak's box, it's kind of like WTF. But I wanted to show this to you. They're comparing, for listeners that are not going to be seeing this, they're comparing Federer to Tiger Woods. Uh, 26 versus 31 at this point to Tiger Woods age. 50 titles for Federer to Tiger's 60. And then the majors, 11 to 13. Any... 2020 glasses context on this. Yeah. Who has come out on top, Tiger versus Roger, in your opinion? And um, just what do you make of this Legends Chasing Legends graphic? Well, I'll tell you what jumps out at me. It is bananas that Tiger Woods in 2006 had won 13 majors and now has 15. If you had told me in 2006 wow. yeah. or 2007 that 13 years later, Tiger Woods would have two more majors, I would have said, no, get out of here. Like what, what happened? And we know what happened. Um, yeah. A, it's really hard to win. He is five years older than Federer here. So you could argue that he's in, and, and we do know, I mean, when you look back at Tiger, this is the backside of his prime, like 2008 us open, maybe his greatest win. Um, that's where he really hurt his leg. And that's what really got the injury train going. Didn't win another major till last year at the Masters. So yeah, he still won titles. He's been number one in the world, but that major thing really jumps out at me. Um, I think it speaks to the the consistency of Federer, both in terms of how he's been able to do it week in, week out. Uh, let everybody argue which sport is more physically demanding, but also we talked about it a little while ago. I mean, Federer, his personal life is so yes. seems to be, and you know, we, you don't know what's going on from the outside, but it seems to be such a rock for him. We know what Tiger was, I guess, going through at this point and what he then went on through the next couple of years. Did that take away from his golf? So that part to me, though, wow, that's a good find. Um, Mirka's story, to be honest with you, is equally fascinating to me. And one day I hope she comes out with a book because 
uh, it's uh, it's got to be chock full of stories and anecdotes sitting on the sidelines for those for that for that career for twenty grand slams and hopefully one more. And on that note, I want to challenge your sort of like casual like write off of like I'll let you decide what sport is more demanding. I think it's objectively tennis. Physically, yes, but everything else about golf. And like with golf too, like you're competing against the field. Like we talk about like Roger gets like a good draw here. So he doesn't have to worry about these guys until the end. Gotcha. That's a um, great point. That's a great point. But physically. Yes, the act of the act, like the physical toll. Yes. It's, it's, it's tennis. more exacting in tennis. I, I agree. But it, like all in, um, God, there's a lot about, I mean, look at what happened like tiger's body, like the amount of force you generate swinging a Torque. golf ball, swinging a golf club. Um, that takes a big toll on you too. So it's at that high level. Like, yeah, if I'm going to go out and play in the park, like, yeah, tennis is more demanding or maybe not when I'm playing. So I'm not that good, but, um, it's, it's high level sports. So like there, it's, it's demanding. And, but yes, the actual physical act, I'll say tennis is more so. I tried to slide Brian, uh, tried to do like a little Novak to get a return. Oh, no. And it was one of the it was one of the worst mistakes of my life. Oof. And it's it is uh yeah, it is definitely physically exacting for sure. Uh okay. Winding down this match, still second set. Novik gets two set points on Roger's serve. Uh Roger pulls himself out of it again. Again, something you don't see. Roger goes on to win the second tiebreak. I think that's when Novak was like, I'm out. This is it. I had my multiple opportunities. Third set was kind of a snoozer. Roger closes it out on Novak's serve. There's a great embrace at the end that I mentioned a moment ago, which I kind of give a lot of credit to Novak for because he was deferential. Uh, and his speech was also kind of, he was well-spoken for a 20-year-old first final uh, speech. He sounded articulate and interesting and, and, and humble, which was kind of like what I was looking for there. Uh, Roger was fired up after he won. Um, my takeaway there was that he really needed this one. He did not want to lose to Novak yet. Uh, I think he was smart enough to see that the guard was changing. I, he was smart enough to see that Rafa Nadal was there, and now there's this second sort of, I'm getting flanked on both sides of my career here kind of a thing. Uh, and that's what you saw when he fell to his knees, and he kind of like, he didn't cry, but he was like, he was like almost like ripping his jersey off. Um, context, the final, the sort of, the setting us up for 2008 um and any stray items brian um impressive win for federer i would have been shocked on that day if i if you had told me that federer is never going to beat djokovic again in a major final which is what the case was uh for a variety of reasons we're going to talk about those as we move on because there have been some epics some real just kind of shocking losses from roger um but yeah it's we i think what's most impressive for me this is now after the US, after Wimbledon. For Wimbledon, that was five in a row. U.S. Open, this is four in a row. So you've got essentially the last half decade. He's won this tournament nine times out of nine. Those two big summer tournaments in tennis. I mean that that's remarkable. Uh, three majors in a year for the third time in four years. That's huge. And I think this is the end of the Federer peak, but just what a peak it was. Like it's been like reliving this over the last, you know, let's say 10 episodes once the peak really got rolling. Like it's remarkable when you look back on how he's doing this week after week, we've said before, like the names have changed a bit, 
Yeah. Um, like we were talking a lot about, you know, like the Hewitts and Nalbandians and Roddicks early on. Now we, those guys get like a passing mention and we're talking about Nadal, Djokovic, um, just a different generation of players that's coming through. But Federer is still there. He's like the metronome at the top. Um, so this is the end of the dominance, but it's certainly not by no means. I mean, we're barely halfway through uh, the end of Federer. Um, I like what you said about the... I like that we both agreed that this was the end of the, 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 just the velocity of his dominance. Um, but the fact that we still have eight more grand slams to go. So we have an, we have an entire Agassi career left to go, which is remarkable. Actually, when you contextualize it in that sort of context, uh, Novak and Rafa did not have, a, they have not had a guy come up underneath them the way that the they came up underneath Roger. I think that's a fair statement, right? I mean, Andy Murray's the closest thing to a version of that. Um, and the fact that Roger was able to eke out, and he didn't eke, I don't want to discount what he did, eight more, again, it's an Agassi-level career after his peak. Um, it says a lot about him, man. He struggled. There's going to be years. We're going to jump from like, 2010 to like 2014 there's gonna be like these huge gaps but he stayed and i think the consistency is what's going to be remarkable as we see before i let you go since you did say at the top of this this is going to be a novak Djokovic sort of parallel episode with roger i just want to spit out a couple of his records that he holds now going up to the present again in 2020 and you can either say something about it now or you can hold on to it for when we get closer in the time sequence here um, we had our goat conversation, uh, surreptitiously a few episodes ago, and I just want to give Novak his due because this was his 2007 was his coming out year. And I would argue that if a couple of break points went in a different direction, it could have been a very different match, could have been a very different outcome because he was playing him point for point, toe to toe. Um, so if anything registers for you, shout out, otherwise we'll save it for next, uh, episodes. Okay. Um, okay. He has the highest number of points accrued as the world number one, um, which I thought surely Roger would have given that he's got more Grand Slams than anybody, but that record stands alone for Novak. Um, He's held all four majors on three different surfaces at once. That's a standalone record, which I assumed would be Roger, but I was wrong. 16 hardcourt major finals stands alone. My watch just talked to me. I apologize. Three streaks of three consecutive titles. We were talking about consistency of Roger. This is all speaking to the consistency of Novak here. The eight Australian Open titles is a record that stands alone. Didn't do them consecutively, obviously, but he's got the record for Australian Opens. And he's played the longest final in history at three majors, which speaks to his durability. That was a concern of his early on. So I see a lot of these ones that I've circled from his resume here as sort of counterpoints to the complaints that have been levied against him, right? Yeah. And then holding all four Grand Slams at the year-end championship at once stands alone. What can you say about that? What does that mean? Holding all four Grand Slams at the year-end championship at once. That's legendary. Yeah, like I 
we had our greatest of all. Like, I think Djokovic. And you can say it. You can say it. Like, but it, I mean, it's hard to say because we're not complete and, you know, all that. But I, I think when you look at what he's done, he's got a winning record against Nadal, winning record against Federer. I mean, he is dominant against Nadal on hard courts. Obviously, Nadal's got it. Like, it's close overall. Nadal's got a, a pretty good cushion on him on clay, but he has done the same to Nadal on hard courts. I mean, his 2015 year, we talked about Federer's like 2006 and 2004. The Djokovic 2015 is maybe six the greatest titles. year. Of, yeah, six. And his 2011 was not too bad either. Like, he's put together some of the greatest years in the history of the sport. He has gone up against um, – maybe the two two of the three or four greatest players of all time, and he's yeah. got winning records against both of them. Um, I think he's the best. I don't think he gets his due um, in that regard just because of, you know, the the attention and the fawning that Federer and Nadal get. Like, and that's in many ways, no, like no fault of Djokovic's own. Like maybe- It's completely subjective. Yeah, um, like he was like late to the party essentially, yeah. but what he's done since he's gotten there, he's got the golden slam of the, the master's events. He's won every master's event, which is a big deal. We've talked about how there's a couple that, yeah. uh, Roger has, has never won. I had and, that circled too. Yep. Yeah. And we talk about like Federer's consistency. Yeah, it's great, but that's consistency too. That Djokovic has won every master's event on every surface. I mean, that's played, that's a really good representative way of, judging a year now what what works against him he's had i would say more lulls in his career than roger has like that after 2015 it seemed like there was a, a bit of a hangover that next year um I remember some of it, it was a, a lot of it was physical but he seems to have addressed that and cleaned that up like you never saw that with federer uh nadal's had his own injury things but maybe that's a strike against him but if that's a strike it's not a big one no. um i mean he's there's nothing on the tennis court, really. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, like weaknesses. There's really nothing on a tennis court he can't do. Like sometimes he misses an overhead, but oh, gee, he missed an overhead. Like he's just so well rounded. He's won maybe the greatest match of all time. That Australian Open final against Nadal was certainly probably the most grueling match of all time. He's, he is like the standard right now in tennis. I'm with you. 17 and nine in finals um, to Rogers 20 and 11 record in finals. Last question. And then we'll go. Um, do you like him for the U S open? If is Novak top of the leaderboard for you? Uh, off the top of my head. Yes. But I think it's just tough to say just because we don't know what it's going to like, who's playing right now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like right now we're at the point, any hardcore tournament I'm picking Djokovic to win. Um, and in a clay tournament, I'm going to give him a good look. Like it's not, but yeah, I, I would call him a favorite for the U.S. Open. All right, my friend. We had a this was a freewheeling episode. We talked about it at the top uh, about it. This tournament being kind of a ho hum, quick one for uh, Roger. Would that just allowed us to talk more about a bunch of random stray tennis related things? So it was a great conversation as always. And I will see you next week, same place, same time. What is on tap? What tournament is it? We're actually going to wait a full year. First time in a while we've done that. We will be back here, 2008 U.S. Open, and we will see a very young Andy Murray in his first major final up against Roger trying to uh, put together a major. Because, uh, I should actually just say this, we will talk about 2008 Wimbledon. probably more in depth coming up because 2008, you got Djokovic breaks through, wins his first major in Australia, 
Federer gets absolutely schooled in the French Open final by Nadal. That's where you're thinking, okay, maybe he he figures it out here and he wins the French Open. But they looked further apart than they've ever been. We know what happened next. One of the greatest matches of all time. Nadal wins Wimbledon, beats Roger in the final. So Federer shows up, Flushing Meadows, uh, 52 weeks later, 2008, trying to win a major, trying to avoid his first majorless year since 2002. Look forward to it, man. Stay well. See you next time. See you, Vic. Come on! 